What's up, y'all? This is Zach with Living Corporate. And look, it's the end of the year, right? Now, I know a lot of the podcasts y'all listen to, you know, they take a break, right? But we don't stop, okay? No days off, all right? No sleep. That's super toxic. That's not true. We're actually all taking a break right now. But we want to make sure that uh, we're still giving you content that centers and amplifies black and brown folks at work. And so what we decided to do was do something called 12 Days of Podcasts. So we're dropping a podcast every day from content that we recorded, discussions that we had early this year um, that we're really excited about. But we couldn't air earlier in the year because of just the chaos of 2020. But we want to make sure that you get this content, that you hear what's going on. So we're really excited about uh, what we're about to share with you. But before we get there, we're going to tap in with Tristan. See you on a second. What's going on, Living Corporate fam? It's Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting, and I've teamed up with Living Corporate to bring you all a weekly career tip. This week, let's talk about why tailoring your resume is so important. Let me tell you a quick story. When I got fired from my first job out of college in 2011, I was frantically looking for employment. I created a resume, had someone look it over, and I went to work. I mean, I sent that same resume to well over 250 employers. I probably only heard back from about 30 of them, 25 of which were like, nah fam, we're good on you. I didn't disclose that I had been fired, so I knew it wasn't because of that, but at the time, I couldn't pin down the reason why. Looking back on it, I realized that it more than likely was because I was sending the same generic resume to every company, no matter what industry or role it was for. Had I known what I know today, I would have been more strategic, but we all know hindsight is 2020. Before your resume is ever seen by human eyes, it is more than likely scanned by what the industry calls an ATS, or Applicant Tracking Software. This software scans your resume for keywords and phrases, then assigns you a percentage. If that percentage isn't higher than the threshold set by the employer, then you're automatically thrown into the no-pile no matter how qualified you may actually be. To take it a step further, studies shows that recruiters look at your resume for about six seconds, count them up, six seconds before deciding if you're moving on to the next step in the hiring process. You have to increase your chances by giving them the information they want to see. The way you do that is by tailoring your resume for each job that you apply for. So here are some general rules. Do a quick review of your resume and take out any expired licenses and certifications, jobs with no transferable skills to the role you're seeking, skills and duties that don't apply to the position that you're trying to land, and trainings that have no role in this job. Then you want to work on replacing them with new and relevant experience that you gained, keywords that you identify from the job description, transferable skills and expertise that would be useful in any industry, and applicable trainings, licenses, and certifications. Tailoring your resume helps to ensure that you at least have a fighting chance to make it past that applicant tracking software and be seen by a recruiter. After that, you have to make sure that your resume is selling you appropriately to make it to that next step. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. We have... As an Quibiri, 
Esne Kubiri is a change agent, diversity leader, innovator, and ally. She's an alumni of Howard University. Shout out HU um, School of Business, where she majored in accounting and business strategy. It was here that Esne's passion for project management and cultural development was ignited. Okay. Recently named top 50 diversity and inclusion professionals by Diversity Mavens, Essence Magazine's Black Women in Fashion to Watch 2019. Esne's proven track record for executing with excellence, driving innovative results, and championing for progressive change speak for themselves. Okay. And with that being said, Esne, welcome to the show. How are you feeling? I am well. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. No, I'm excited and thankful for you to, for you to be here. Um, so look, you know, there's this ongoing like ancestral descendant of slavery versus non-ADOS debate. I'm curious, considering your position within H&M and as a Nigerian American, do you believe there needs to be more work even during this time around anti-blackness within the larger African historic community? Yeah, you know, that question is really interesting and, and that debate, and to be honest, I try not to indulge in it um, because of the fact that, you know, I, I it for me when um, in the black community we find different ways uh, that causes additional divide amongst us. And it really breaks my heart to see that because I think that um, if we look at our white counterparts or other parts, you know, when you see black people, they just see the black community, people of color, and there's no distinction whether I am from Nigeria or from Haiti or from Jamaica or from anywhere else. So I think personally, you know, my story is when, when we migrated here, I was five years old. So I'm coming to a new country, no decision by mind. And I've done all of my education and my schooling. I hold a U.S. passport. I'm a registered voter. I give back to my community financially and, um, and my volunteer time. So it's like, what additional things does one need to do to the American? Um, you know, I, I think that the argument when it comes to reparations is a valid one because I, I think that if there was a time where the country decided to pay the Jude reparations, um, I do think is warranted. I think that it's long overdue. And as someone that is, um, my ancestors did not come to the U.S. enslaved, I wouldn't be seeking any and would encourage other people that um, does not have that, that history to also not seek it either. But, you know, I think it's one of those conversations where when we get to that part, let's talk about it. But the divide that is that is causing publicly is pretty unfortunate. Um, and I think in, in my career, if I can just add on, I never really experienced it publicly until I think I got my role um, at H&M. And I think I was one of those that was victimized and targeted and trolled and negative comments said about me. And um, simply because I interviewed and, and was offered an opportunity, you know, and, and there's nothing that, uh, because of the fact that I am well aware of American history, like I went, all of my education was here. So I think for someone to say that I'm incapable of managing the, because I was born in Nigeria, is completely false, you know, and I think it's, it's, it's unfortunate that we do that to other people too, of power that is really looking out for the black community as a whole. So I think you know, I always tell people too, like words are words are very powerful, and we really need to be more responsible of the information that we're putting out there publicly. No, I hear that. I, I, it's an interesting point. I do believe that, like, 
you know, when we are navigating these spaces as a larger, like larger diaspora, like we're black, right? Like mm-hmm. I think there's a way to like respect like different cultures and backgrounds and like celebrate those things without at the same time, like pitting one against the other. Cause like, we just don't have the the luxury yeah. and privilege to like, to be disjointed. Right. Yeah. 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 And unfortunately that's how I think as as much as some of the points are valid, that's how it ends up being received. Right. It ends mm-hmm. up being received as a true divide. And then what happens to the other group where, let's say um, your family, like if, like my future children that will be born here, you know, where, where, do, where do they fit into this? And I think, again, we're, we're finding unnecessary to exclude when those that are truly in the front lines of activism is trying to activate and to support and to fight for all of us as a community. Hmm. You know, so I, I don't think that we're in a position where we can create, like, we don't we don't have that luxury and that privilege. We right. really don't. Right, right, right. We need to we need to be as united as possible at this point. I agree. And you know, speaking of that, I want to get right to it and talk about you know, seeming like so like what like four or five years ago, Black Lives Matter was uh, was seen as something very radical, right? Like it was seen as taboo to to say and things of that nature, especially in majority white spaces. Um, considering your current role with H and M, how do you view this phenomenon that we're in right now? Yes, I'd like to start just to talk first, just as a black woman, and and what does that mean to me? And seeing the recent awakening, if you want to call it that, of the rest of America, understanding and and now I guess trying to be in the side of black. Now, I think for me, it is um, you know I'm all about allyship. Like I want to see the allies there. I want people outside of our community to be able to speak to say Black Lives Matter and to understand why we as all lives matter um, because it's still a form of inclusion. So as a Black woman, I, I, I appreciate the recent awareness um, and I look forward to our peers and others being able to truly to, to, to really try to drive that and, and really do your part, like do your research and do your part and be vocal because I, I do think that we're more powerful when we have the diverse voices, um, because my networks, regardless of how, you know, I think I'm so open-minded and diverse, the majority of my network is probably is black. So I can't keep preaching to the choir. I need to get and, and have white allies and have Asian allies and have Hispanic allies to be able to get and be my voice and to amplify it to say Black Lives Matter. Now, I think in the corporate space, what we really need to pay attention to is what happens after, you know, when you make such a decision and you are essentially riding the waves and you're in it and you are paying attention to social media and maybe you're getting called out, maybe you're not, what are you really going to do about that? And and I really look forward to seeing what could do. And when they stand on this, when another big topic may come and take over in the media space. Black Lives Matter movement, we've been talking about it forever, regardless of what the media media starts to shift on something else. How genuine are they going to be in, um, in, in being vocal to say Black Lives Matter? When I, I was in my community, just driving around the neighborhood, and I'm seeing all of these businesses that have it on their windows and have it on the boards, and I'm like, wow, like everyone is really paying attention. But, you know, I think that actions speak much louder than words, and the black community will hold them accountable. 
And I think this is a time where we have the attention of the world. We as in the black community have the attention of the world. So I think we really need to be very strategic in declaring what our demands are and how we are planning to um, push forward and hold other people. I welcome the awareness of it, but I want to make sure people understand, like we're talking about real lives. There's nothing trendy about this. There's nothing fun about it. There's nothing cute about it. Um, we're talking about real people that have been directly impacted by um, police brutality and, and discrimination in, in America. Well, you know, speaking to your point around like companies taking this beyond just this moment, can we talk a bit about what H&M is doing internally and externally, especially uh, post uh, the 2018 monkey hoodie incident? Yeah, you know, I think that one of the things the action was that my role needed because of it. You know, I think that the company was looking to take a stand and, and truly make a change. And, and one of the action items on, on their to-do list was to bring someone in this role and that's why I'm here. And since being here, we've done a tremendous lift and tremendous change in the way it was prior to. I think it, I always say this, and when I say this, people are like, oh, as I'm not sure. You know, a lot of these companies, it's not that they're racist. We really, truly look at the definition of racism. They're not these white supremacists that are like, no, we don't care about black lives, black talents. Like in most of the corporate boardrooms I've been in, that's the story is really the majority of the conversation is complete lack of knowledge, like complete clueless, just unaware of what some of the conversation is or not really paying attention to the fact that your rooms don't look diverse. And it's because things this as normal. No one is challenging the conversation. No one is challenging the fact that you don't have the diversity in the room. Everyone is just going and worried about their own role and what's going to happen next for them. No one is challenging them. And that was my goal from the very beginning because I've been in other organizations before. I know what these boardrooms always look like regardless of how hard you fight and understand that it is long-lasting systematic issues that are creating these norms, cultures that go way beyond me, way beyond you, and maybe way beyond most of the people that we're listening to were organizations that have been founded 100, 150-plus years ago. This is their norm. This is their culture. Coming there, I wanted to shift the culture. And in order to shift the culture, one, what we have to do internally is acknowledge the fact that we have a true problem. And not a problem as in, oh, no, the public is upset about the fact that we um, created the pain with, um, with a little beautiful black boy in, in a sweater that said, coolest monkey in the jungle, but to understand the reason truly behind it. So what I did was we did a lot of listening sessions and a lot of um, knowledge sharing opportunities in the company from middle management to upper management, kind of giving them historical content as to black history. H&M is also founded in Sweden. I think a lot of people also forget that part too. So you have to think about the cultural uh, nuances play with that as well. So then after that, created an unconscious bias training, which I believe is a true foundation to starting your movement and diversity, inclusion, and equality. You need to understand their biases and exactly what does that mean and how that shows up in these spaces. Um, and then started working and creating strategies with our talent acquisition, with how do we recruit, how do we promote transparency in these type of movements as well. I think externally, 
my goal was to get the company. So again, if you think about the Swedish culture and comparing it to the American culture, I wanted the company to get more comfortable in expressing different things that they were doing. They, they H&M actually does a lot of amazing things in the community and the, and the number of dollars that they give back to various communities. But no one really talks about that. So we need to start talking about that. that if, you know, something was to happen, at least the brand has a little bit of credibility to fall back on. Um, so in, in doing that, what we created was a strategy to be more visible in the community. And that took place as far as like partnerships, community sponsorships, and inviting the community to our offices as well. So prior to me arriving there, it actually was not a culture to bring experts or community members into the office, which I thought was very shocking. So now it's kind of like Black History Month. We are acknowledging it. Not only are we acknowledging it, but we're also creating programming behind it for our staff. So I think that that was very important. And I and I wanted to make sure I wasn't the sole voice of it. So creating to bring in um, black creatives, black agencies, black talent in order to create an experience for our employees was really important to me as well. Um, establishing recruitment levels or partnerships with different universities. I'm a graduate of Howard University, so I think HBCUs is, is very important to me and giving back to them. So was able to create a career fair with them that H&M didn't have before. So I think, too, also I want the younger generation or just anyone that's really looking for employment and stuff to think about the different opportunities you can have in retail. Like sometimes we just think that retail is about designing or it's about being in a store, and there's so much more in between that. You know, and I think another big piece, too, that I like to mention is the partnership that I do have with our headquarters in Sweden. I think is that we keep the lines of communication and awareness open. So we created a um, training program called Layers that I'm really proud of and is really taking a deeper dive into what we mean about inclusion and why it's important to us and why it should be important to everyone. And, and in this training, it's really about like reflection. So they go into a series of reflective moments and thinking about scenarios where maybe they missed a voice and didn't go well and why didn't it go well. So I wanted to make it really real and tangible where it would resonate to the different positions that we have in, in the building. So I so I think it's such a long road. I think everyone wants to see like immediate change. But again, if we're breaking something that has been a cultural norm, the good and the bad of it for years, decades, it's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to change it up. But the, the dedication is there, and we can continue to challenge the leadership team to think bigger, to be bolder. And I always encourage the employees that I meet, especially in our stores, which are predominantly um, Black, to be vocal. You know, you have to be vocal. You have to be able to say, no, my leadership team does not represent the community that we're in. We need to give more. I've applied for roles. I have not get it. What are you going to do? Well, again, it's not just coming from Ezene's voice. Right. Ezene's speaking on behalf of your team. And right. this is what your team are, is saying about this thing. Um, so I think that that has also been able to champion the work even more because uh, they don't want to do bad. I mean, they, sure. they generally want to do well, but I think it's, it's 
the priorities and um, and just trying to navigate through that being a challenge. No, I think that's fair. I think I think also is like the reality is people have been having challenges in their workplaces for like mad years. It just so happened that there's a certain confluence of events that have like now suddenly perhaps caused some type of awakening. But like, you know, I, I refuse to believe that. I mean, I know for a fact black and brown folks have been, you know, trying to raise issues about discrimination and stuff for 70 years, like both in and outside of work. I think for me, our question is like, is corporate leadership across the board, right? Like not just the H&M, not just like, but like when you think about like the culture of senior leaders, are they images like today? Because we've seen like when organizations want to change, they, when, they, when, when they want to do something, they just change. Like it's not like this mm-hmm. like slow erosion of behaviors. It's like, no, we're just going to put these policies <laughs> in place and you're going to just change. Like, uh-huh. And so I think for me, yeah, I mean, yeah. for, for me, I'm like, I'm thinking about like, okay, so. So right now, like we're still kind of in this like kumbaya phase, right? Like like kind of okay, yeah, Black Lives Matter, yeah, we care, blah blah. blah. But like what I'm really curious about is like in the next you know six months from now, as more and more Black people continue to die and be murdered. I mean, people that I saw just online, like this is just something I just that I just saw today. Three other Black folks have been killed in some way uh, related to yep. police. And so it's like as these things continue to happen, like I don't think Black people are gonna, I don't think Black and Brown people are gonna just get t- are gonna just stop. But but the question is. Mm-hmm. As leaders, like what happens when they fatigue, but then like the oppressed voices are like, no, I, we still care. That's what I'm most curious about yeah. is like, what yeah. is this going to look like in January? Yeah, definitely. And I, and I tell you, I think that, Eve, you know, again, as, as you know, so much power in the media, as the, as the media started to carry these stories more, the fatigue for me has reached all time max because now there's a sense of the, we've been talking about for years and I'm like, Oh, okay. So now everyone wants to be urgent and I happily stand with you and create these strategies, but you need to show up. And then, and I've been very vocal. Right. I'm like, you're like, you're not waiting. Right, you're waiting not for waiting you. for me. You're not waiting for Zach. You're not waiting for any of these other black people. We're waiting for you. We're waiting for you. So whenever you decide to, that you're ready to execute, I've been ready, you right. know, been right. ready, been have these strategies, have these contacts to make the real change. So I, I don't with you in that. And what does this look like in six months? But I think that this is why we need to make sure that our voices are united and amplified and do not let us die down. I, that's nothing. You know, I think now that the power of social media where companies cannot escape this, and this is why they're paying attention now, and this is why they're trying to react. This is why you see these public statements. This is why you see these new companies. Because no one wants to be in the fire on social media, right? you know? So right. I think we need to use that to our advantage and right. say, okay, no one wants to be part of this. So how do we, you know, I jokingly was telling people, I'm like, no, call your boss, email your boss, because I'm telling you're not going to get fired. Trust me. They want to <laughs> hear from you. You need to, you need to pressure them. And I tell them, and I'm, I'm like, because. As vocal as I am, I can in the room. No, Someone that's else fair. needs to pick it up so that they can see the urgency of this. And then all I do is say, oh, I've been telling you this for the last two, three years. So, you know, so now what are you going to do about it? But um, my commitment is to make sure that I'm doing my part in whatever rooms I'm in and the spaces that I am, I'm in, that these stories do not die and do not lay flat. And, you know, and everyone went to that. And um, even with your next promotion, your next big opportunity, your next contract, 
how are you making space for someone else that looks like you to now be right behind you, you know? So I think that that's what we need to keep thinking about. Man, I'm right there with you. Um, as an, this has been a great conversation. You've been dropping jewels this whole conversation. So I'm, you know, but before I let you go, <laughs> before I let you go, any parting words or shout outs? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? I was actually, I'll take this time to shout out the people that have really been on the front line um, on social media, gone down to protest and, and advocating in a larger sense. Like I was saying, like, I've been so tired, so I can only imagine how they have felt and, and gone into these um, conversations and working through all these things publicly. You know, I, I just, their mental well-being as well. I mean, I think that what I would just say to people is continue to amplify your voice. I think that we need to be fearless when we are making demands, but we also need to be very strategic to make sure that as we're the demands that we're making make sense, and then we follow up and we're ready to show up when when the call is there. So I am devoted and dedicated to continue to do my hope to bring as many people along with me as I can. So thank you, Zach, for the opportunity. No, thank you, Ezene. Now, look here, uh, y'all. Y'all know we do this every single week, okay? Uh, until next time, this has been Zach. You've been listening to Ezene Quibiri. Till next time, y'all. Peace. And we're back. Listen, I want to thank you, for real. If you're listening to this, thank you so much for engaging with Living Corporate. It has been a hell of a year and a hellacious year at the very same time. Um, but we're thankful for just shoot being here and we hope that uh, you come back shout out to y'all make sure you share living corporate with a friend or two with a relative as you do your socially distanced christmas gatherings and uh we'll catch you soon all right peace Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.